the first time that I remember getting really angry at God was also the first time that he, well, that I noticed that he truly did save my life. Dove Faith Cafe. Real stories by real people. Welcome to Dove Faith Cafe. I'm Marie. You'll hear more from me later. First up today, a story from Ellie, a young woman full of life, zest, and energy. Ellie shares her story of loss, loss of her freedom, loss of her health, loss of her independence. It was in that loss, though, that God showed her how truly blessed she really is. Sit back and enjoy an uphill ride. The first time that I remember getting really angry at God was also the first time that he, well, that I noticed that he truly did save my life. About four years ago, um, in 2019, um, I, at the time, was 20 years old, and I remember, um, you know, I just come home from college for the summer, and I was so excited to have the summer with my friends. You know, we, we, I had camping trips planned, um, hanging out at the lake, working a lot, um, just really living it up and spending, you know, what I thought was going to be like the perfect 20-year-old summer with my friends and my family and really just having a good time. Um, so I was working at a landscape company about... Uh, about eight miles from my house or so. So I I was an active cyclist, um, you know, all through high school and into college. So I commuted to work by bike, you know. Um, I had been doing that for um, just about a week since I had been home from college. And one morning I was getting ready for work and hopped on my bike ready to go. Um, and I was riding down the road and I remember just this impact. I could, I, the cars, you know, had been driving by, but it wasn't really an issue. Um, never had been in all my, all the time I had spent cycling. It was never an issue. I had never had any run-ins with cars or angry drivers or anything like that. So, you know, of course I was used to cars driving by me on the road and I remember, hearing another car come by, not thinking anything of it, feeling this impact. And then I remember being airborne, you know, I was just flying through the air. And I remember thinking to myself, did I just get hit by a car? I mean, I was, I've thought it to myself kind of sarcastically or ironically. I just really couldn't believe it. Because um, like I said, I had been an avid cyclist, you know, on old country roads where, you know, people are driving way too fast, driving way too big of trucks. I never had an issue with it. So I just couldn't believe it. So anyway, I remember thinking that when I was airborne. And then I uh, woke up sometime late. I mean, probably just a minute or two. I don't actually know. But sometime later, face down in the gravel on the side of the road. And I just laid there. I was kind of looking around. There were people around me. I didn't really know what was going on. 
Um, and I remember my first thought, my first instinct was to stand up. In my head, I thought, if I can stand up, I'll be, it's, everything's fine. I just need to stand up. I just need to stand up. Um, so I tried to, you know, I tried to move my hands under my shoulders and, and get to my knees kind of, you know, like the basic functions you do to stand up without even thinking about it. But as I was trying to move, I realized I couldn't, you know, even if I consciously thought about moving my hands or, uh, flexing my ankles to, so so that I could stand up, I just couldn't do it. I, there was no movement. And so then I, I was, I was really scared that, that terrified me. Because I didn't know what had happened, of course. So there were people around me. The driver um, who who hit me actually ended up pulling over. And so he was there. Um, you know, somebody from came out of the house that I was riding by. Some other drivers had stopped. And so they were all gathered around me, you know, saying, don't move, don't move, just stay on the ground. You know, we called 911, all of this stuff. And at that point, I couldn't really form a conscious I was, I mean, I was, it's hard to explain. I was conscious, but I wasn't aware of anything. It was like my brain was not working. I, I couldn't remember where I was or what I was doing. I thought I was back in Moscow, you know, back in my, where my college is, not back home. And so I was just, I was very, very confused. So I just basically laid there until the ambulance came. Um, And then the, the ambulance got there and I kind of vaguely remember them putting a neck brace on me, getting me on a backboard, getting me in the ambulance. And still, you know, I don't know if I was in and out of consciousness at this point or if there was just, um, you know, a head injury, but I really don't have a lot of memory of that ambulance ride or that, um, you know, the moments before that I got in the ambulance. What I do remember is waking up or, or just coming to in the ER, and I remember looking up and seeing those just super bright fluorescent hospital lights um, and still just not really believing or understanding what was going on. Um, But I saw the hospital lights. There were nurses and doctors around, and they were all just so busy. It was like, it was sort of like I wasn't even there. You know, they weren't talking to me. They weren't uh, trying to make a conversation with me or anything. They were just really busily working and I was just kind of their um their instrument I guess their their thing that they were focused on so that went on for a while and then um a nurse or a PA or somebody uh came up and talked to me and said you know we're we're gonna call your mom what's her phone number all of this and so got my mom on the phone um and I kept saying she didn't she didn't answer but on the voicemail like I kept saying I'm okay I'm okay I just you know I just need you to come I'm okay everything's okay I didn't want her to worry um and so eventually I guess she got the voicemail or the hospital was able to get a hold of her somehow because she came she came to the ER once um things had calmed down a little bit so I was in the ER and they called for a cat scan I think or an or a MRI I don't exactly remember some sort of scan and so then when I got back from that, my mom was there in the ICU or in the ER, you know, adjacent, whatever sort of room that was. Um, and she was very upset. And then my dad and my sister came. And then we all just kind of sat in that room together. We were waiting to see what the what the doctor said, what was going on. And <laughs> I remember... <laughs> 
my sister, I don't even know what she said or what she did, but she made me laugh somehow. And it was just so painful. I was, you know, trying not to laugh because it hurt just, just unbelievably bad. Um, and then she felt bad because she had, you know, she was just trying to make me laugh. Uh, oh, I remember what it was. I had a neck brace on still at that point. And there are different settings on those neck braces. So you can, the first one is like no neck. And then there's, you know, small, medium, large, whatever. And mine I was set to no neck. And so Kathy, my sister was making fun of me for that, which made me laugh and then made my, my back hurt so much. But anyway, we kind of hang out, hung out in the, in that ER room for a while until a doctor came in and explained what's going on. And so he said, basically what had happened was the wingtips on three of my vertebrae had been broken off and then I also cracked my hip my left hip and my pelvis on my left side that's what he said um you know they were going to keep me in the hospital and make sure everything was okay um but then he said that it was so strange to be talking to a cyclist because normally in car versus uh, bicycle accidents the they don't get to talk to the cyclist you know the Either that the the cyclist doesn't make it at all, or they're in such bad shape that they just they they can't talk to the doctors or or really be awake or anything like that. So he said it was just amazing that he was able to talk to me and that I was sitting up here. And then um, the cop who was the first on the scene when I first got hit, he also came into that room in the ER and basically said the same thing. He's like, you know, I've seen these accidents before and I've never spoken to the cyclist afterward so anyway i go up to my to the room where i'm going to be staying in the hospital and my dad and my mom and my sister are all still there um and basically we're just kind of waiting like i'm i'm getting drugs i'm and they're just kind of waiting to see if i'll need surgery so i'm laying in the hospital room for a few hours and the first visitor who comes to see me is the pastor of my church um and that was pretty I was just very shocked that he that he came. You know, it, was, it really meant a lot to me that he was there. So we talked for a while and we prayed. Um, but everybody who came into my room, all these nurses and doctors and whoever else, they all said the same thing, that they never get to talk to the cyclist in a car versus bike accident. So after a while, to be honest, I was kind of sick of hearing it. I was like, yeah, I just, I just make me feel better. You know, I was just very impatient. So time goes on in the hospital I don't I don't need surgery um I I, you know I have to spend some time recovering and uh I was in the hospital not much happened there just kind of waited to make sure that I didn't need surgery and that I was going to be able to walk at least somewhat um basically I just laid in bed you know nothing nothing really exciting happened there like I mentioned my pastor came to visit me my mom was there my sister was there my dad was kind of in and out going home um the hospital I was at was only like four or five miles, I think, from my house. So it was pretty close. But I remember I was wheeled out of the hospital in a wheelchair. And, you know, my mom and the nurse are helping me get... I had to get in the back seat of the car so that I could kind of quasi-lie down. Um, but anyway, get in the car. And I felt every single bump on that route. And it was just so incredibly painful so it was my car ride home and I got home my mom helped me out of the car shuffled I actually had a walker so literally shuffled into the house 
and sat on the couch and that's kind of where I spent the next six weeks or so that's when it kind of really started to sink in for me I was like how how serious these injuries were because I couldn't stand up by myself I couldn't dress myself I couldn't go to the bathroom take a shower um I couldn't walk upstairs you know I couldn't do anything by myself and I'm a fairly independent person um and so being in a situation where I had to rely on other people was just I mean for the especially for such mundane ordinary tasks I was so just irritated and embarrassed and I just it was not an easy pill for me to swallow I was on some extremely uh potent pain meds I mean all all, all variety of things um and of course my mom went back to work so most days I was home alone sitting on the couch doing absolutely nothing I couldn't you know walk around really on my own I couldn't take the stairs but and I also just had no interest in doing anything I think it was a combination of the pain pills just completely numbing my mind I would you know stare out of the window for hours at a time with not a thought, you know, it's like a tumbleweed in a ghost town. That was my, the inside of my brain. Really doing nothing and then also just being physically unable. So, you know, I needed help with all these things. But, of course, my folks couldn't just stop going to work. So I had, luckily, all of these aunts and cousins and all these people coming every day to help me with all this stuff. You know, cook meals for me and give me sponge baths, take me on a loop around the house with the walker. But, um, you know, the more I sat at home, the angrier I got, which sounds, in hindsight, I guess, really selfish and childish, but there it is. Um, I kept thinking, you know, how can this be what's meant to happen? Like, if God has a plan for me, why is this part of it? All I want to do is be out with my friends, go camping, you know, work, go hiking, sightseeing, birding, cycling, all these things. And I couldn't do any of that. I was stuck at home alone. Um, and it was just, I just, yeah, I was very, very angry that summer. To be honest, I was stewing a lot. You know, I was really upset. I had, like I mentioned, this awesome summer planned. I was 20. I wanted to be out with my friends. And then none of <laughs> none of that happened. I was just sat at home in pain, you know, having my aunt carla give me a sponge bath that's not what i that's not what i wanted um so i was pretty pretty irritated but luckily i was able to go back to school that fall um and the support from my friends and my family continued i moved back into my sorority house and um i was very taken care of there but it wasn't until kind of like six months or maybe even a year or longer later that i realized how blessed i was to be in the situation that I was. I mean, so many things went right that day. I I mentioned I was riding my bike to work, so I wasn't in my normal cycling shorts and shirt. I was in long jeans. I had boots on, um, long sleeve shirt on. So my road rash was quite minimal. I was wearing a helmet, which saved my life. I uh, also you know, came out of that accident alive. The driver stopped, other people stopped to help. So that was pretty major. And then afterward, I had this entire network of of support that um, really got me through the whole situation and is continuing to get me through today. I wouldn't have have made it without them. You know, if I, 
if it had just been me alone, I would not have been able to bathe or feed myself. I mean, it would have been, I, I really don't think I would have recovered. I certainly couldn't have driven myself to my physical therapy appointments and things like that. I not only survived that accident, but um, then to also have just this incredible support system got me back on my feet, literally, and continued to support me through the physical and the emotional ups and downs of that, that whole situation. So I realized that, you know, I spent a lot of time being angry at my situation and just wondering, like, why, like, how can this be part of God's plan in my life? I don't, I don't understand any of it. Um, and with time, I realized that it just made me be grateful for the things that I have, the awesome family that I have, the life that I have, which I think if I had never had a, an experience like that, kind of a, a life or death experience, I wouldn't, I would just kind of coast through life, not really realizing how great God is. You know, it's kind of a dramatic way to learn uh, how important he can be in your life. But I guess I needed that because I was just, I don't know, too stubborn to realize it otherwise, I guess what an amazing family God put me into and what um, uh, a lucky situation, not only on on that day of the accident, but just the the situation of being surrounded by this incredible network of people. In hindsight, I think it's actually a, a great thing that that happened. I mean, the amount that I lost versus the amount that I gained, uh, it's it's pretty dramatic. And hindsight continues to get better and better every day. If you have a faith story you'd like to tell, go to our website at dovefaithcafe.org to find out how you can share your story. Welcome, everybody. Welcome back to Dove Faith Cafe. Um, we have a special guest with us today. That is Dr. Julian Smith. He is the Associate Professor of Humanities and Theology at Valparaiso University, Christ College, the Honors Colleges, College. And uh, Dr. Smith, Julian, is also a cyclist. So welcome, <laughs> Julian. Good to be uh, here. We, Thank you. We have Jordan Trendleman, my co-host for Dove Faith Cafe. He is a seminarian at Suwanee, and he is also an extraordinary human. Uh, <laughs> I am Marie Gambetta. I'm a co-host of Dove Faith Cafe. I am a cyclist, and I am just a regular human. So welcome, everybody. I'm really glad you're here. I have some fundamental issues with, with several of those uh, introductions. <laughs> there, I, I thought you might. I thought you might. All right. You yeah. want to be a cyclist too, Jordan? <laughs> yeah, Jordan, you want to be a cyclist? You add uh, that to your profile? I could add that to my list of things that I do. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Very, right. very, very interested, yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Well, uh, so we have listened to Ellie's story and there's a lot there. I'll, I'll be happy to open it by saying that her opening line struck me. Every time I hear it, it strikes me that uh, the first time she realized she was angry with God was the day he saved her life, the day God saved Ellie's life. What a hook. What an opening line. Uh, and I can tell you, she's not a professional storyteller, <laughs> but even so, she started off with a with a smoking line. So um, yeah, think about that. Mm. 
Did that strike either of you? Well, so I was listening to the story for the first time as I was riding my bike to work. Oh, whoa. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, and it it actually brought back memories of uh, a bike versus car accident that I had been in several hours, or several sorry, years earlier. And uh, so many of the details that come in that first beat of the story where she's describing what happened uh, rang so true to me. Um, and, uh, and I, I really enjoyed the story, but honestly felt maybe I should not be listening to this while I am writing my book to her. <laughs> but, um, in, in terms of the line though, that caught me, um, it's kind of buried in the middle of the story where she's describing what it's like when she gets home and how she was starting to get angry and stewing. And then she says, I guess that's a little childish and selfish of me like she doesn't she obviously doesn't feel good about the reaction that she's having but i also uh thought um that's part of the story that yeah. you, you have these feelings and you don't know what to do with them because they just don't feel right um mm -hmm. but they're so human yeah yeah i noticed that too i noticed that and and she and she just said, but there it is, you know. That's just I'm human, and there it is. That's the the truth of of how she was feeling and what she was feeling, and how she knows that makes her seem. But th that's just human, like you said. Mm, yeah. But I, but I think like like so many aspects of like thinking about thinking, like once once you're aware of that tendency to. Uh, uh, fall into these these you know mental patterns or, or emotional patterns that don't that don't serve you well or at least don't serve well the version of you that you'd like to project to people I think it it immediately yeah. graphs and changes behavior in and of mm -hmm. itself and in that moment of and I, and I think uh, although I didn't maybe I didn't hear her name it uh, explicitly I think that that's also a, a grace-filled uh, gift of God moment when we have that ability to examine our mental constructs or the way we're behaving emotionally and say, hey, this isn't the best version of me, or this isn't the version of me that I want to project out to the world that, that doesn't represent my priorities or represent my my worldview. And, and I think that those moments are grace-filled in and of themselves, uh, in addition to the other obvious grace-filled moments the story represents. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's interesting that as soon as we make, we have that awareness, it changes everything, you know, or at least it starts to change everything. That's interesting. Yeah. You know, Jordan, that, that uh, expression you used just now, uh, grace-filled moments, um, what comes through in this story is how unwelcome those moments are and how we wouldn't normally choose them. Um, yeah. Like, uh, you know, one of the huge takeaways from the story is how Ellie learned what gratitude means. Um, and it's not, I mean, I don't get the sense listening to the story that prior to the bike accident, she was, you know, a fundamentally ungrateful person. Um, uh, I, I don't get the sense that uh, she was, you know, mean-spirited and fundamentally no, ungrateful. Yeah. But there's a way I think that it, you know, we all can uh, cruise through life um, with without um, kind of bringing to the forefront of our 
you know, our, our, our daily life, the, the attitude of, of being grateful. Um, and it seems like, uh, I don't know how you get to that point without God intruding in your life in a way that's pretty unwelcome. I mean, you know, the, the two beats of this story is, you know, the physical pain of the accident and then the kind of longer malaise of apathy and anger and self-loathing. Um, and you would never choose either of those things, right? Right. No, no reasonable, rational human being would say that's a good path to spiritual transformation. <laughs> and, and, and so it's like a mercy that God allows these things to happen to us because we would never choose them. And she said that at the end, she said, um, I'm so blessed. I'm so blessed that this happened to me. And, and unless you know her story, you've heard her story, you think, seriously? I mean, if you just came in at the end and she said, wow, I'm really blessed that this happened because of all of these blessings, all of these God-filled moments that happened, all of this grace and, and all of all that I've realized that 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 can be startling yeah to hear someone no, say that you're exactly right so if, if you just uh, chanced by somebody you know eavesdropping on a conversation and they said a line like that i would probably think to myself yeah right you know <laughs> <laughs> that, that's so trite and cliched in a sense uh, but you don't feel that at the end of the story because i think what mm -hmm. the story does is it earns her the right in our sort of in our hearing to say that right because it's for her at that point in the story that is a hard one realization yeah right it did yeah. not come easy to her yeah definitely and I, and i think it's something that doesn't necessarily come easy to all of us but just like all of the elements that ellie names in her story as being these things uh, that she becomes more acutely aware of her interconnectedness to her family, the support they provide, uh, the grace in everyday moments of relationship with others, and things along that line. All those were elements that existed in Ellie's life before mm. this, this tragic moment alongside the road. Uh, they, they were all there. They hadn't been given a reason to exercise agency in the same way that they did after the accident, but they were all present in Ellie's life beforehand. And, you know, we've talked about this before, but you can get into this kind of sloppy and dangerous theology of why, of why God allows us to suffer and, and all these kinds of things. And it can be particularly damaging when we're speaking to somebody in suffering to tell them that there's, you know, benefit or, or uh, growth to be harvested from their own pain and suffering in that moment. But as individuals, when we stumble upon the reality of some of those elements that it's not particularly that God causes this accident to happen. In fact, God was providing this entire network of care and love and support in Ellie's life before the accident, but it was through this tragic event that it, it surfaced or bubbled to the top and, and, and she became aware of it in a way that she wasn't before. And the, the grace is not the accident. The grace is God's intervention post-accident in bringing those things to light, which were already there to begin with. Mm. Yeah, excellent. I agree with that. You know, she said during during her recovery, what we all say 
from time to time in our lives is how can this be part of God's plan? What good can possibly come of this? And, and I know for a fact that God never wastes the pain. However, when we are in that pain, it is difficult to wade through that pain to figure out how God could possibly be bringing some beauty from these ashes. It can be very, very difficult. And sometimes that's an opportunity for me anyway, to just pause, stop asking the question and wait and just trust mm. that God will bring beauty from these ashes somehow if I'm just patient and I can work through it and, and wait and, um, and, and use some perspective. I mean, well, I love the other line I love from here is hindsight continues to get better and better every day. That was her last line. And I'm like, well, mm -hmm. truer words were never spoken. <laughs> you know? And sometimes that hindsight is where we begin to uncover um, the beauty that God brings us for some of the pain that we're going through. Mm. Yeah. I've, always felt, Marie, that that question, how could God allow this to happen, or what is God's purpose? I mean, we all ask that question. If we, if we believe that there is a God who cares, then we're always asking that question. And I more or less have come to the view that that's not an answerable question. Right. We, never, we never get a, a good or satisfying answer to that question. Um, but I also think that perhaps there's a question behind that, which would be, is God actually there? I mean, mm -hmm. given the fact that I am experiencing this pain, um, do I have any reason to believe that God is here in the midst of pain? Um, and, and I think that there is an answer to that question. And it strikes me, I don't think Ellie put it precisely this way, but as she's talking about what she learned, you know, the, the sponge bath that Aunt Carla gave her. Mm -hmm. um, I think the, the answer to is, is God walking with me through this pain? The answer is yes. And, 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 and the answer is through the people that loved her. Mm -hmm. um, and also the story made me wonder, like we, we don't obviously, because this is Ellie's story, it's not Aunt Carla's story or anybody else's. Mm -hmm. But I, I did wonder, you know, the second time listening to it, I wonder what this experience was like for Aunt Carla, mm -hmm. because caring for somebody who is experiencing great pain and, you know, mental and spiritual anguish, that is not easy. Like there's often, I think, a dark cloud um, that, that surrounds us when we're in that space. Um, but I, I mean, who knows? <laughs> We're not given in the story what Aunt Collar was experiencing. But I, yeah. uh, but I, I kept wondering, huh? Um, maybe part of her caring was a gentle ability to not respond to the negativity with uh, qu sort of quick um, answers, but to just mm -hmm. be able to provide the care and trust that God is going to you know, bring this person out on the other side. And it's, as, as carers, it's not our um, job to answer all the questions. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. That's very, very interesting. I'm sure it wasn't easy for 
Carla or any of Ellie's other relatives who cared for her physically to to help her. But of course, everybody wanted to because Ellie is such a lovely and loving person. Even in the midst of <laughs> this tragedy, you know, they they want to be with her because they love her and because um, she is such a loving person. And and yeah, interesting. Jordan, you look pensive. I'm just thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I, I, I like. I keep my. I keep uh, circling back to this idea of mystery that you that you put forth, Julian, in the in that in that question. I mean, that's you know, it's like the big question. Uh, I think the the why the why suffering, uh, why why a loving God would allow us to suffer. But I really like your idea about the about the um, the inherent mystery of it. You know, it's it's kind of uh, this transformational power that suffering contains in it. I mean, it's even, it even plays out in, in the narrative of our the basic tenets of our faith about Christ's sacrifice on the cross and, 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 and what, what these mean, what, what meaning suffering can entail and what things suffering can hold and, and a transformational and resurrectional reality that can, that can spring forth from that. And in some ways, just like the mystery of what that reality uh, post-resurrection paradigm looks like some of these questions like why and, and how and to what extent God's uh, intervention is in our own suffering and, and whether or not there's purpose or intention behind it, I think is sowed in those same seeds of unknowing that won't be available to us until some super uh, future event, do you know what I mean, of, of, of a post-resurrectional reality. And, and I think that some of that moment with Ellie, like stepping away from those, you said the dark, kind of the dark cloud or the the negativity that can creep in and it can affect those around us that are caring for us. It can begin to, to multiply and, and take, you know, take hold in those moments. There's still this hope um, and this almost trust in that transformational or resurrectional uh, uh, power within our suffering and our challenges. And I think that it's a shared experience and it's not just isolated to an individual. And it points to that same grace that Ellie became aware of in the end about her interconnectedness to her family and the, and the loving network of relation that has always existed there for her. Um, mm. And it's certain. Yeah. You know, uh, as, uh, so <laughs> professionally, but also personally, I'm very interested in, in the apostle Paul and, and uh, and there were aspects of what I think Paul's story was that resonated with Ellie's story in the sense that um, I want to maybe Ellie wouldn't like this characterization I don't know but it seemed a little bit like her story was like a second conversion um, in the sense that um, it really fundamentally reoriented. Um, how she related to God and how God was at work in her life in all these ways that um, had been ongoing, but which she wasn't really aware of. And I, so I think of the apostle Paul, you know, he has this, um, if we were casting Paul's story today, you know, on the, on the way to Damascus, maybe he gets knocked off his bike by a car. But he has this <laughs> dramatic experience mm. and it totally changes how he thinks about God and himself being a faithful Jew and ultimately it you know helps him to make the realization that that Gentiles are welcomed into God's covenant family but then there's the second thing that happens to him 
Um, and he doesn't write about it a lot, but apparently, um, and you kind of piece this together from Acts as well as Paul's letter, he was imprisoned in Ephesus um, as the upshot of a, of a riot that happened in the city. And when he writes about this to the church in Corinth, he says that we, he says, we were so utterly unbearably crushed that we despaired of life itself. And it's a rare moment of um, emotional vulnerability uh, that you don't often get with Paul. And, and, and as I say, he doesn't write uh, a lot about it in an autobiographical vein. But if you, if you look at the letter that he writes, or I think he writes this letter when he's in prison in Ephesus, it's the letter of the church in Philippi. It is the most intimate, uh, joy-filled, and uh, gratitude-abounding letter. And I think that experience in prison probably changed him. And it's not that he was unfamiliar with suffering, right? Elsewhere in his letters, he says, you know, we were flogged so many times and stoned nearly to death and we were shipwrecked and all this other things. But I think um, there are certain kinds of suffering um, and Ellie's I think is a good example of it where you're incapacitated, right? She says, I'm a pretty independent person. And for six months, I couldn't do anything. And to, to, to be an individual and not to be able to take care of the basic stuff of life, um, I think brings on a, a new level of abandonment. Um, and um, it feels like it thoroughly reorients um, herself to to God's reality but it brings me this question okay so <laughs> all that was a way of, of saying um, is it a problem for us as humans that we are so independently minded because um, I, I here's what I have in mind like when we come into the world we are entirely dependent right on our on our mothers and our parents and families we can't survive without care and as we leave the world it's kind of the same situation. And yet in, in our, you know, when we become adults, we cultivate this attitude that, you know, essentially I am an independent person. And there's a lot in our culture that I think reinforces that. And certainly there's some truth to that. But I, the story got me wondering, like, um, is that a fundamental wrong stance to have about ourselves as persons that we are independent? <laughs> You know, that, that's so interesting because I think in the culture that we live in here in the United States in the early part of the 21st century, <clears throat> we are, you know, that, that that lots of praise and laud for being independent, lots and lots. And the world, our world is set up for that. But throughout history and certainly in other cultures, it's a communal relationship that we have with people. It's not about me taking care of myself and staking my claim in this world. It's how do we relate to one another? How do we live in community with one another? And I think that was certainly Paul's world. And I think that was Jesus's world too. How do we care for one another? Although he did have to remind people to care for one another, right? Hmm. And and mm -hmm. and and we've always been doing that. But I wonder if we have taken it to an extreme so that when we cannot care for ourselves, it seems um, unusual and it frustrates us. And um, when we have to depend on others, like you say, it it just takes us out of ourselves and it it uh, makes us angry. What do you, what do you think about that, Jordan? 
I mean, what I, what I what I was thinking about when I was listening to the story about that and that particular point in the story where she's just kind of isolated at home. I mean, anybody who's who's recovered from any kind of larger medical thing knows that if you're cognizant enough to even watch TV or movies, there's only so much TV and movies you can watch. There's only so much, uh, you know, monkey mind kind of like base uh, entertainment that you can give yourself. And at some point, you're left alone with yourself. You're left alone with the lack of stimulation. Uh, you can't perform things on your own. And the thing I immediately thought of was meditation retreats that I, I had been on in the past where you didn't choose the food. You didn't choose when it happened. You didn't choose bedtime. You didn't choose wake up time. Like you were completely stripped of all your agency. And, and the effort was made to entirely disengage the ego from that entire week of time. And you were just left to the rhythms of the day. And you're just left to yourself in hopes of finding some deeper truth about the nature of your own reality. And Sometimes we enter into that freely, and that can be even more difficult in some ways than having to suffer through it, because at any point you could, I could have gotten up in the middle of a very long silent meditation moment and just left. <laughs> I could have <laughs> got up and rung the bell and, as I often fantasize about, screamed at everybody that they were crazy and just leave. <laughs> um, and it was very tempting to do so. So in Ellie's case, she couldn't. Um, just get up and leave and say, you know what, I'm done with this. I'm done with this time period of, of retreat uh, from, from the world and activity. Um, but I think that some of the results of those two experiences can be similar in ways. Um, and that when we begin to remove all this sense of, of our own uh, individuality or our own self-dependence, uh, I'm going to stand by earlier statements that I made that I think it just exposes a, a fundamental truth. So whether our reliance on the idea of being independent people, independent people, um, are self-sufficient, effective, you know, I think about being, is it, are you an effective person seems to be a preoccupation, uh, within, within our, our society, but regardless of that, whether or not that's wrong, it, it does betray a fundamental truth about our reality. It's inherent in our understanding of a triune uh, trinity-based deity. It, 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 it undermines uh, a relationship uh, aspect of our reality that, that, that we aren't defined in any way without the definition of other things and other people in our reality. So when we, when we uphold this idea that we can somehow be in one piece of the puzzle and, and still encompass the entire picture, it's a fundamental it's a fundamental fallacy. It's the root of idolatry. It's the root of, of all kinds of false ways of thinking. It, it gets things done in a world sense, but it betrays the spiritual truth of our constant communion and relationship with one another. Mm. Wow. That's a lot to chew on. And it's particularly a lot to chew on in, in, in a context, not to derail from Ellie's story, but I mean, we, we're we're rightfully so, uh, you know, within within certain certain as, certain uh, uh, areas of the Christian world, really wrestling with with identity and, and and diversity of identity and wanting to to be inclusive in our in our congregations and, and welcoming of people into what we see as a radically inclusive gospel message, and so we're we're uplifting and validating individuality on this one level, but then on this other level, do you, I mean that there are true there's a truer identity to to community living that has to do with the identity of the community as a whole and not the individual, and that and that we're taught through through Christ's example, that, that sometimes that means self-sacrifice. Sometimes that means putting aside our own or inclinations, our own 
identities are our own effectiveness, are our own uh, independence right. to, to and, exist and in community. And so how do we how do we hold those two things? How do we how do we validate individuals of all kinds and all places and all backgrounds, but at the same time require that those individuals to some degree step away from those identities to exist in community for the betterment, not of just the community, but ultimately the true self that they possess that that requires that mm -hmm. dignity. You know, it's absolutely it's, a, it's something that as a, as a church, church capital letters, I think that we're really we're in the thick of right now, you know, and, mm -hmm. and we see mm -hmm. and so it. It, for me, at least, it bubbles up in conversations all the time right now. So when I'm listening to something like this story with Ellie, I'm like, here's this, here's this tension, right? You know, between what I think should have happened, what is obviously happening, and then this this apparent reliance on on community and relationship that 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 God desires for us, you know. So. And you know, I think that if related to your point i think that if, if 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 we had asked ellie you know a year before or six months before her accident do you appreciate your family and friends she would have said yes absolutely yeah mm. but she appreciates them now on so much deeper a level than she did and she probably understands and values community like she hadn't before and sees herself like you said jordan as an individual yet as part of a community as part of a greater community um and i think she had an appreciation for her church community the fact that her pastor visited her in the hospital um was so surprising to her which you know Wow, I <laughs> that was just an assumption that I made that your pastor would visit you in the hospital, but but maybe you know that's that's an assumption. Um, but she was very touched by that and saw herself, I think, in hindsight, of course, as part of that larger community and and her her identity as an individual and her identity as a member of that community. Hmm. And it's not to say that I think that any of those different identifying marks about who we are, both individuals and community, are necessarily bad. No, but no. sometimes, but we have to constantly be aware of where we're arranging that hierarchy in the particular moment, right? Where, is, where does our hierarchy of identity fall in any particular moment? And for, for somebody who's in a position of suffering, who needs help, the mm -hmm. identity that has to become the hierarchical top priority is there, is there, position within the community and the community's responsibility for caring for them. Do you know what I mean? And that's, and that's, that's, a, it's a sliding hierarchy at times um, of, of what's most important in that moment and where, where our emphasis on identity falls in that yeah. particular time. Yeah. Hmm. And, and if you, if you, you know, ask Aunt Carla, how do you, how do you think about, what do you, what do you remember about that time? She would probably say, I just did what we needed to do. We just did what we needed to do. She is a member of my family. She's a member of my community. And that's what we do. And yeah. And in a, in a way, the, the circumstances, and I'm sorry to be dominating the conversation right now, but it, 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 the circumstances produced an outcome where Ellie was able to step outside of Ellie's identity for a moment and embrace yeah. this, this community identity that was caring for her. But individual members within that community, like Aunt Carla, had to step away from their own identity and assume Ellie's identity as their primary focus, right? So yeah. it, even our identity is not something that we have exclusive rights to or ownership of in a lot of ways when we exist in community. So for, for Ellie's identity to then be, you know, juxtaposed over 
Car- Aunt Carla's entire reality for the for the duration of time that she was under her care. Carla wasn't waking up for a moment, you know, for a little while there thinking about Carla. Carla was thinking about Ellie. And yeah. most of us spend most of our lives thinking about ourselves the first thing that happens when we wake <laughs> up in the morning. That's true. That's true. I hadn't thought about that. And so mm. my curiosity, you know, and, and I, I hadn't even thought about Aunt Carla, so I appreciate you guys bringing up Aunt yeah. Carla so much. But does Aunt Carla recognize the grace inherent in those six weeks of caring for Ellie where she got freedom from the trappings and complexities of being Carla for six weeks and got mm-hmm. to exist in full service. And does she recognize that that too is a grace-filled moment that, mm-hmm. that germinated and, and, and came to fruition amidst community suffering, you know? I will have to ask her after she hears this, <laughs> this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> so I have what I think is probably an unanswerable speculative question, but it, it's nagging at me. So maybe you guys can help me. Um, I can imagine a story like this ending differently, where mm-hmm. um, where the the anger that she's feeling in that second chapter of the story, where she's stewing all summer long, um, I can imagine a story in which that is the state in which she ends, or like the the ending of the story was, and this is why I've come to believe that that god is is nowhere right that all mm-hmm. i believed about mm-hmm. god was just a cruel joke and i like um i i think i know people um that have had tough experiences and those experiences have um seemingly i mean we never know what the future holds but in in the present case at any rate have you know drawn them seemingly irrevocably away from God. So I'm curious if if, if Ellie was with us here today, I want to ask her, like, what was it that you think in your case um, didn't lead to that kind of an outcome? Didn't um, leave her bitter. Didn't leave her bitter yeah. and, and angry still. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean... In a, in a way, that seems to me the more likely, if you're a betting person, um, I've, I think you might say, you know, uh, quote unquote, naive belief in God plus huge disappointment equals rejection <laughs> of God, right? Yeah, sure. That, sure. that seems to be the conventional equation. I think that's mm-hmm. far far more common than, than yeah. not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the proof is also, I think, and I don't know if it's an answer, but it, I think some of the proof in the pudding for me with that, though, is is that infrastructure of community that existed there beforehand, mm. you know, that, yeah. that, mm-hmm. that, you know, if there was no pastor to visit, if there was no loving family to take care of the person, I think it becomes far more susceptible that the individual would stay focused on the individual and not have that moment of stepping outside themselves and recognizing mm-hmm. yeah. the, the great, the grace that was occurring. In, in that time, you know, I, I think that that's, um, for me, looking looking in, I think that's a huge benchmark of that story. It's just that there was people readily yeah. available there to help, you know, there's. Um, yeah, I think you're right. In a way, it's a story about the church. Uh, I don't know that, I mean, she does explicitly mention the church a couple times, um, but mostly she is describing the activity of the church. I mean, they also seem to be the, the part of the church that is 
<laughs> uh, blood related to her. Um, yeah. But, you know, um, I've been rereading one of my favorite authors, a man named Leslie Newbegin, and uh, he has a phrase. Uh, he says that the the local congregation is the hermeneutic of the gospel. Hmm. And I think what he means by that is um, Christian faith is impenetrable um, unless it's lived out, unless it's embodied. So you might well um, have life experiences that raise important theological questions and um, like the one that Ellie raises, why is God letting this happen to me? Um, or what is God's purpose in that? And I don't think you're going to get uh, a, a good answer that, that satisfies you on a rational basis. But what satisfied her, if you want to think of it that way, or you know, what made the gospel real to her was the caring action of the church. Um, and outside of um, that embodiment of the gospel, I think the gospel probably doesn't make sense to a lot of people. Yeah. Um, so I wonder, um, had she not had that network, um, would the story have turned out um, remarkably different? It may have, you know, this is a, this is a faith that must be lived if it's going to be real. You know, mm -hmm. I can tell you that that um, nobody thought she'd be able to return to college that fall. And um, uh, and she did. And not only did she return to college that fall, but um, she she uh, is in was in marching band and she played tuba. And tuba is a heavy, heavy instrument. And nobody thought she'd be able to play the tuba in the marching band. And I can't remember if she switched instruments that season or if she didn't, but she she marched, you know, and she overcame incredible odds, incredible pain. But still, when she went to school, she said she had her family there, her her sorority sisters, her friends at school. You know, these are people mm -hmm. who became her community there and lived out what it means to be a Christian or a, a good a follower of God um, there also. And um, she's just a remarkable young woman. She really is. And I think circling back to how different people respond to these different ideas, I think there's a lot of truth in what you're saying about, you know, a gospel message is only as good as it's being used in some regards, you know, and that that there's always this opportunity in our lives for us to just collect trauma for trauma collection state, mm -hmm. you know, purposes, you know, and, it, and it's kind of like you, you guys have mentioned being cyclists. It's like you can only ride one bike at a time. And I imagine that there's a tendency to like see new bikes or new things. And, and, and for me, it's video games. It's like, but am I going to actually play this game? Or am I just purchasing it just to have it, right? And am I, am I collecting this trauma just to hold on to trauma? Or hmm. am I examining trauma for the purpose of, of embracing transformational, resurrectional potential within it? Because I've had proof of that in the past and the community has shown that to me and I have experienced that. So am I... So if I'm not going to use that trauma for the purpose of forwarding a relationship with God, then I'm much more likely to pass up on collecting it. Yeah, well said. Oh, I like that. 
So in the same way that a gospel is only as effective as, as it's as it as it's being used, it's do we participate in the activity of transforming and resurrecting out of trauma and challenge in our lives into something more fruitful? Or do we just hold on to it for the sake of holding on to it and to add it to the the shelf full of traumas that we've collected throughout our life? And I think that's the thing that that can lead to that kind of bitterness. And I think we all do it on some level. I'm not saying that we don't. don't. But there's, you know, coming out of a situation like this, I think a lot of people without the framework, without without doing the work, I mean, it sounds like to me that Ellie did the work that she might've felt like she was very stagnant and trapped, but it sounds like to me, she was doing just a tremendous amount of work and working with the experience that she was having and, 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 and investing in it and exploring even the uncomfortable parts of the experience and, and steps away with this ability that we're being self-referential and, and seeing the larger picture. And that's, that's a product of both the community's work and her work and most certainly God's work in the scenario. Hmm. Amen. Amen. That's good stuff. That's really good. Well, I, I could talk with you two all day about this. Did you want to say one more thing, Julian, before oh, we sign off? Just Jordan, I appreciate the acknowledgement that she was probably doing some serious work there. I think work is a good um, word to use. And I suspect that at the time it felt not like work, but rather like um, fruitless floundering. Like some, <laughs> to take a completely uh, other analogy. So I, I write and oftentimes my process of writing just feels like the, like the you know, paroxysms of death. Like I'm a fish out of water, just flapping and I'm expending energy, <laughs> but it's going nowhere except to like wear me out and it just feels increasingly frustrating and then at a certain point there is a breakthrough and at that moment i'll i'll be able to look back and see well that actually wasn't flailing that was a, a sort of a, a a painful way of working through things and what's painful is you don't know where you're working towards it's kind of like you're a, one of those automatic robot vacuums and you're you're just kind of moving aimlessly, bumping around the living like, room. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> looks like I've cleaned the living room here. Um, but that's that's also, I mean, the, to me, those are the God moments, you know, that we talked about mm-hmm. really early on. I mean, that's the uh, if 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 I if it feels like floundering and thrashing about. And then the end result is that I've I've grown both in my in my human experience and my relationship with God. Well, that that wasn't me, obviously, right? That was mm-hmm. that was a grace-filled moment that happened there. That mm-hmm. was that was God's God's intervention because to me it just felt like like I was thrashing about, you know, or or yeah. Um, and, and so, and in some ways, I think it's one of those things that if you were to become a kind of acutely aware of it in the moment and not just left to the thrashing to some degree, you might not you might not come out with the same profound experience too. I mean, it's, you know, sometimes when we, yeah. you know, her hindsight gets better and better comment at the end. It just, it just speaks to this. We talk about this all the time, Marie, about, about the, the power of storytelling is kind of unearthing these God moments and, and, and constructing a narrative that gives purpose and, and edification to our experiences, you know? Mm. And um, 
But sometimes when you're in the thick of it, that's not the most productive thing to do. I think sometimes the thrashing about is the most productive thing you could do. Yeah. Feeling feeling hopeless or feeling uncontrolled or feeling like you're at at the mercy of your entire reality. Um, once again, exposes a, a fundamental truth about yeah. about reality, and, and we would I, short the experience if we didn't do it that way. You know, I think uh, mm-hmm. I think it's Bridgman who calls that the neutral zone, and mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, or liminal spaces. You know, it's during those times of transition when we're floundering, when we're suffering, when we're really we don't know which way we're going, that that God is doing the most work in us and through us, and you know. We're always happy when we come out the other side of that. It's it's there's a lot of work that happens in there, but when we come out on the other side, we then look back, like you you know, hindsight gets better and better, and we think, aha, so this was what this was all for. This is what I've realized. This is how I've grown. Hmm. This is mm-hmm. this is the new chapter I've written. <laughs> and and there's a lot of experiences like that. I mean, I, I I find it in working out. I'm sure it's relative to to cycling. I mean. There's got to be moments in a long ride that you're going, why, why in the heck am I even doing this? You know, but this but is a it, terrible sport. <laughs> there's some Sunday morning. I think that we have a lot of people who don't, who, who I'll hear people say, well, I, church isn't feeding me or church isn't providing for me or, or mm-hmm. I'm, what am, what am I, if I don't see myself in this, then what am I getting out of it kind of thing? But mm-hmm. for me, it's kind of the exact opposite. Sometimes I don't always want to go to church. I don't always as a seminary and want to go to three chapel services a day, but I'm always happy that I did when I'm done. I'm always happy mm-hmm. that I went ahead and went to the gym. I'm sure you're always happy you went ahead and went for a ride, mm-hmm. you know? And what we see in Ellie's story is despite the challenges of the whole circumstances, she seems to have come out in a better place because of it. And that's just one of those mysteries that we can't really explain the inner workings of how, why, or to what degree God makes that happen, you know, in heavy quote, heavy quotations. But uh, mm-hmm. we we can trust through the data we've collected that it continues to happen in people's lives over and over again. Amen. To, to, be, to be a quantifiable proof of, of God's presence in that activity somehow, you know. Mm. Which is, I think, why stories like Ellie's are so important because they provide an answer experientially that you just can't give rationally, mm-hmm. right? You, you can't prove to anybody that God is present in the midst of your worst weakness and infirmity and pain, but you can say, I know this person and she has this story to tell. <laughs> and actually there are a couple stories that you might want to listen to, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is an incredible segue to close up here and and remind people that we have other episodes to listen to, some incredible stories, some great discussions after each story. Um, So I invite people to continue to check out the website and download our podcasts and and see what's new. So I thank you both. I could talk about this for hours and hours and hours more, but I won't. So... (laughs) Uh, I want to thank you both for being here, Dr. Julian Smith and Jordan Trendleman. Thank you both for your continued uh, Jordan insights and expertise. Dr. Smith, thank you so much. And um, I, uh, I look forward to talking with you both again. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks, Marie. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, everyone. I'd like to give a shout out of thanks to our storyteller, Ellie, my co-host, Jordan, and our special guest, Dr. Julian Smith. Extra special thanks to our sound engineer, Father Tom Adamson. Thanks for making us sound better than we really do. 
If you like what you hear, let us know. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and on our website, dovefaithcafe.org. Check us out and leave a review.